Tonight on Rhode Island PBS Weekly. A local guitar maker is reimagining how instruments are made. It's not like um, a hippie solution, you know, it's actually like tangible solutions with actual everyday application now. There's a great deal of light pollution in Rhode Island because we're situated in the Northeast and the Northeast is really densely populated. Of all the pollution issues, this is the one that the everyday person can make a huge difference in with such a minimal effort. They didn't understand that I couldn't read a sentence in People magazine. I couldn't pay attention to a movie. I couldn't follow the plot. My brain was not processing. Good evening. Welcome to Rhode Island PBS Weekly. I'm Michelle San Miguel. And I'm Pamela Watts. We begin tonight with stories that explore environmental issues here on Earth and in the sky. First up, as awareness of climate change grows, more and more people are trying to reduce their impact on the environment. Some choose to ride their bicycles or carpool to work. Others get solar panels installed on their roofs. In our continuing Green Seeker series, we meet a local artist who is reducing her footprint through music. I was very quickly disenchanted just by the mass production. Things that were inventory on the shelves often could end up in the trash. Rochelle Rosencrantz had established herself as a furniture maker and an industrial designer, both in her native France and in Rhode Island. But about a decade ago, she decided it was time to explore something new. I missed working with my hands. That was the bottom line. And I started to play music again. So that really like propelled everything. Rosencrantz first came to Rhode Island as an exchange student at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design. She had an internship with a company in Providence before heading back to her home near Paris. The company where I did my internship called me back and said, hey, we need a designer. We enjoyed working with you. Would you like um, to work with us again? I said, you know what? Eight months in Providence was a bit too short. I will give it another two, three years. And 18 years later, here I am. <laughs> what do you love about Providence? It's small enough, you feel part of it, but it's big enough, there's always something going on. It's great to be an artist here if you're a visual artist or a musician, it's a good place to be. You're not far from Boston, you're next to New York. I mean, it's, it's a good place for creative people. There you go. And over the years, Rosencrantz says, her own creative process faced some inner struggles. If it wiggles a bit, yeah. She felt torn between being a musician and a visual artist and dreamed of combining her two passions. Was there a moment when you realized, gosh, I can make a living making guitars? Yes and no. Uh, yes, I w yes, other people do it, so why not me? And I've been thinking about it for too long to not do it. And no, because it was scary. It's like, it's a drastic change. It was worth the risk though. Worth the risk because she believes she has an obligation to handcraft guitars sustainably. I think you have a different respect right. for nature and the way trees are being harvested, the way trees are being cut down versus somebody who's just 
buying a guitar at a store. Right. <laughs> They're not thinking about where these materials come from. That's true, that's true. And most people don't know even the woods that are in their guitar. And most people don't even know the type of structure that's going on inside their guitar. Rosencrantz says the environmental impact of making guitars has been well known for decades. Much of the timber used for guitars comes from old rare trees that produce good acoustics like ebony, mahogany and rosewood. Excessive harvesting of Brazilian rosewood in particular has contributed to its extreme endangerment. It's one of the reasons why she's selective about where she buys her wood. My rosewood is from India. My maple is from the States. My, I have some cedar from Spain. I have some cedar uh, from California. Rosencrantz puts in long hours in her guitar studio in Cranston, which sits right below her apartment. She has a two-year wait list for customers looking to buy one of her handmade guitars. But when the pandemic hit, she says business came to a halt. Musicians are my clients. Musicians were not working. If they are not working, I'm not working. So it was a phone call, an email, text message saying like, oh, this guitar, can we put the construction on hold? My tour got canceled and, you know, things like that leading one to another. Like, okay, so now what? I'm like, well, now I have all the time in the world to finally build the things I always wanted to build and experiment with that I never had the time to, to do. Because you had no business. Because that year the business went from building like eight guitars to zero. She used that time to experiment with making instruments from other materials while working part-time at RISD. Take, for instance, the body of her guitars. They're not carved, they're grown. Rosencrantz packs her molds with mushroom spores as well as organic waste like corn husk. That whole bag might do the trick. Actually growing a body in mushroom is cheaper than cutting a tree across the world. That's just the bottom line. It doesn't look as good as, uh, you know, figured maple. It looks like a granola bar, but there's kind of a brutalist, uh, you know, aesthetic to it. <laughs> the growth of the mushrooms fills any remaining spaces and binds it all together in the shape of the mold. Then, once it's dry, Rosencrantz is left with a solid board. Yeah. Her friend, Mark Milloff, stopped by her studio to try it out. Pretty close. Because it's mushroom, I think of really delicious uh, porcini soup or something like that. Uh, but, um, uh, yeah, there's definitely a distinctive sound. It, it is absolutely not a wooden guitar, a wooden resonance. Uh, there's something that is, uh, I find, very pleasing. She's not the first to see the potential in mycelium, the thread-like branches that grow beneath mushrooms. See, this guitar in encourages that kind of music. It doesn't encourage... Oh, maybe it does. I just love the sound. Many industries are taking note. For instance, these Adidas sneakers were made from it, 
and IKEA has been using it as an alternative to styrofoam. It's not like um, a hippie solution, you know, it's actually like tangible solutions with actual everyday application now. But uh, I saw that, well, nobody's looking at the acoustics of those. What if maybe there's some solution there too? So I gave the bees a soundboard to build from. Rosencrantz not only proved mycelium can be used to make guitars, but she also built one from honeycombs. The humming of the bees is within the range of the guitar. It's 309 hertz. That's close to like the A string on a guitar. So I'm like, okay, so that should diffuse a guitar. She knew honeycomb was resonant. She designed a bracing structure and watched as the bees built their comb along it. But then she found herself with a honey-filled guitar that couldn't resonate. So I had to leave it a whole winter but for them to eat because it's cruel to like take, you know, take all their food. They work hard and now they're going to starve. No, I can't do that. So, well, they had food for the winter and they returned in, in uh, early April. I had a, a perfectly cleaned up guitar that was like empty of honey that could resonate. Rosencrantz admits strumming a guitar made from honeycomb isn't practical but she says it's helped her better understand how biomaterials can diffuse sound. What drives you to explore these biomaterials to make instruments? It's just fun. It's just like I'm having a blast. I'm learning so much. As I'm working on one, I start to have like five other ideas. There's so much curiosity that the learning curve is exponential. And she clearly likes a challenge. While she's working more with biomaterials, she still uses wood to make guitars, including woods that crafters once overlooked. I see a lot of people now are using local woods. We see the use of Osage Orange around Illinois a bit more. Osage Orange behaves almost like ebony, and people thought it was like trash wood in their yard, and now it's treasure. So it's just to look at things differently and, you know, really, Having like some figured maple is just for the prestige of it. If you close your eyes and you listen, actually Popper does a pretty goddamn job <laughs> for like the same density. I mean, I'm curious, you're someone who goes to bed every night and you feel better about the way you're leaving the world yeah. than you found it? <laughs> I do. I mean, I'm still worried <laughs> but the the state of the affair as far as pollution and, and the consequences that we can feel already just temperature-wise. But I feel better that I'm trying not to contribute to that and that I educate myself on that and I can also educate others. Uh, though, so, you know, I, I feel, yeah, <laughs> I feel better than 10 years ago. <laughs> We turn now to a form of pollution that's rarely talked about, but over the years has taken away our connection to the sky above. In another installment of our Green Seeker series, photojournalist and editor Ross Lipman visited one Rhode Island town where darkness is creating a window to the universe. When I think of light pollution, I often think of Van Gogh. 
You know, his Starry Night is one of the most searched and sought after pieces of artwork. It's incredible. And I think, what would that painting look like if he had looked out and saw light pollution in France when it was, you know, inspiring him? And all of those beautiful swirls that you see in the night sky that he created, they would have been just blobs of yellow fog. If you want to be inspired like Van Gogh was inspired, where do you go in Rhode Island? For me, I go to Charleston. The only place in Rhode Island that I've ever seen the Milky Way is in Charleston. My children went many years having never seen the Milky Way, and when they first saw it in Charleston when we were down at Frosty Drew, they were absolutely amazed. Charleston is this little, like, gem in Rhode Island. Hi, how are you guys tonight? How many for? Once you leave the beach, the quest isn't over because now when the sun sets, you have thousands of stars overhead that you're not gonna see pretty much anywhere else you're going. Frosty Drew to me is, it's like the little observatory that could Fort Island. It gives you these fantastic views. And the Milky Way is starting to become even more visible to us right now. It's a pretty powerful experience. I think of light pollution as just too much light where it shouldn't be. It's this idea that there is an extraordinary amount of light that is unnecessary, that is directed into the wrong place, that's crowding up the sky where we cannot see the night sky any longer. We cannot see the stars that we've been able to see for generations. There's a great deal of light pollution in Rhode Island because we're situated in the Northeast and the Northeast is really densely populated. So when you've got that dense population, what happens is typically is that you've got a lot of buildings, a lot of structures, and those buildings and structures are lit up pretty heavily. If you went to a spot like Frosty Drew, then you can get outside of a lot of it and actually see a lot more stars, but the majority of people living in Rhode Island, they don't see the Milky Way. They don't look up at that sky and see an inspirational view. They see light pollution. I do think there's excess lights when you're walking around Providence at night. I would say there are areas to be able to fix that I think wouldn't cause a lot of problems to change. Even things like the way, say, the state house is lit up at night, that could be done, I think, a little bit more subtly. Making sure all of the street lights, the neighborhood lights, the city lights in general are well shielded, which means the light is being directed down. Because when you have an unshielded light, there's a whole lot of excess light that just goes, bounces right up to the sky. It's not about removing lights, not completely. It's about lighting better. It's about lighting smarter. And I feel like that's one thing I actually really appreciate about the topic of light pollution. I feel like it is eminently fixable. Of all the pollution issues that are out there, this is the one that the everyday person can really make a huge difference in with such a minimal effort.
when you come in at night, turn off your lights. Hit the switch. Charlestown's the darkest spot along the Atlantic coast between New York and Boston. If you're flying into Rhode Island, you see the lights all around the region, and then there's a dark spot along the coast, which is Charlestown. In Charlestown, we passed a dark sky ordinance in 2012. I think that people who've lived here for a while and experienced the dark sky are very much in favor of protecting it. Frosty Drew Observatory is really important to protecting our dark skies because it's so easy to quantify what's being lost. And when we lose the dark sky, we, we will eventually lose the observatory. They won't be able to do their work because it'll, it'll be like every other place that has lost its sky. We'll have two telescopes set up in the courtyard too that you can go up to whenever you would like. Sweet, awesome, thank All you. All right, you're welcome. I think people need to understand that view that exists down there. We also have the Perseids still happening, which will radiate from the constellation Perseus. It requires everyone to work together to do that. It's not just because it's Charlestown that it's dark. It's because everyone in Charleston is working to keep it dark. So the Big Dipper is these three stars make the handle, and then the fourth one here makes the root of the bowl. Observatories like Frosty Drew can really provide that first-hand experience for Rhode Islanders of what absolute gems our universe has for us, and how important it is to keep that link to the night sky. Humans have been looking up at the night sky forever. And we really don't know what it is we're losing when we cut off such an important part um, of our existence. So having that direct access to the night sky from the ground, from here on Earth, is a really important thing. Finally, when Providence-based and New York Times best-selling author Anne Hood lost her daughter two decades ago, the overwhelming grief took over her life. Tonight, she gives us her take on coping with grief and how people can help someone going through a devastating loss. People do lie about grief. They tell you time will heal. They tell you God only gives us what we can handle. They tell you all those platitudes that really don't apply. And and that really don't help. My name is Ann Hood, and this is my take on coping with grief. April of 2002 was an incredibly unusually hot month for New England. And what I didn't know but would later learn is that spike in temperature did something strange to the strep virus, the one that you usually get strep throat from and that kids did get strep throat from. My son had it, I had it, my daughter Grace had it. But hers was the virulent kind that they call galloping strep. And she spiked a fever. So I rushed her to the emergency room. But within hours, I found myself in the ICU with a doctor looking me in the face and saying, your daughter's not going to make it. She was in the hospital for 36 hours before she died on April 18th. 
Part of what writers do is make sense out of chaos, whether we're writing fiction or nonfiction. But when Grace died, I couldn't make sense of it. And writing required that, requires it of writers. So every time someone handed me a notebook or just gave me that advice, I hope you're writing this down or please write this down or you'll feel better if you write about it, I could just shake my head because they didn't understand that I couldn't read a sentence in People magazine. I couldn't pay attention to a movie. I couldn't follow the plot. My brain was not processing the way it had for my entire life up until that time. I think people, wonderful people, want to fix everything. You know, when you call a friend, you have a broken heart, or you don't know what to do about your job, or any kind of thing that happens in your life, you call someone for advice, and they want to help you. They want to fix it. They want to come up with a solution to make your life easier and better. But when you lose someone, and, and I have to say, losing your five-year-old daughter, maybe in particular, they can't fix it. No one can fix it. I always say that six months later, when I learned how to knit, it brought my concentration back because I'm not very crafty. And I had to think so hard to get, you know, seven stitches done correctly. But that kind of allowed me to start reading again because I, I was like training my brain how to think and concentrate again. And slowly, slowly, I began to write again. And so I wrote an essay called Comfort that became my memoir, Comfort, about the lies people tell you when you're grieving. And, and I wrote it with my responses to them, the things I wished I had the courage or the nerve or the energy to say, but I just couldn't. So as a writer, I, I wrote them down instead. For me, and I think for many other people, your brain is like an old VCR stuck on replay, where it keeps replaying the hours leading up to, to what happened. And for me, those hours began in the emergency room, and I would start there, and I would just replay it, replay it, and of course, the end of that loop is Grace dying. And as much as people had told me, write it down, it might help, it did help to explore grief. And after I wrote The Knitting Circle, the novel, I started writing about grief in my fiction so that I was writing and exploring different aspects of grief with distance. And that distance kind of opened the door now when I think of her, I almost never think of the hospital. I always think of her um, as she was. My advice to someone who, who's grieving, perhaps just started grieving, is that there's no rule book for this. There's no roadmap to follow. You know what you feel and you know what you need. And don't try to please the people around you by doing what they think you need. It's really, really important to understand what will help you and I know there are times you feel like nothing will help you. And in those times, it is okay to give in to crying or avoiding people or whatever you have to do. Don't fall into the misleading idea that there's a way out, that everyone has the same way out of this. My advice to someone who wants to help a friend or a relative who's, who's grieving is kind of twofold. Do something extraordinary and do something small. Something extraordinary. I have a friend in New York City who just felt so terrible that she wasn't near me after Grace died, that we had all these miles between us. And one day she just drove those three and a half hours and showed up with lunch for me. And it, it made me feel good for days that someone did that extraordinary thing. Another friend stayed away respectfully, 
didn't call, but she sent me a card every day for 30 days. So every day I knew that she was thinking of me. Show up in whatever way you can. Um, and don't expect anything from the person who's grieving. Do those things that are comforting. We all know how it is to be comforted and what we need. Think of that and do that for them. My name is Ann Hood, and this has been my take on coping with grief. That's our broadcast this evening. Thank you for joining us. I'm Michelle San Miguel. I'm Pamela Watts. We'll be back next week with another edition of Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Until then, you can visit us online to see all of our stories, past episodes at ripbs.org weekly, or listen to our podcast, available on all your favorite audio streaming platforms. Thank you. Good night. <laughs>